Welcome to the Wisdom Community Podcast. I'm Rabbi John Carrier, and I am convinced that the path to a better life lies in seeking wisdom and in seeking community. Are you seeking? Then this is for you, seeker. Hello, Seeker. This is John Carrier, your occasional teacher and your BJFF, that is, your big Jewish friend forever. Today's show is a little bit different. Rather than giving you my take on something and uh, answering your questions like I usually do, I want to share with you a conversation that I had with one Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Rabbi Greenwald lives here in the LA area, and he's the director of the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. Now, this program offers uh, an amazing course of study that introduces adults to Judaism. Uh, it's all kinds of adults. Uh, it's Jewish adults, uh, the not yet Jewish adult, and sort of non-committally curious, I'll say. Those who are simply seeking wisdom or seeking a community and have heard rightly that Judaism has something to offer in that regard. Now, since recording this conversation, I have had the pleasure of teaching Rabbi Greenwald's curriculum at my own synagogue, and I have to say that it is far and away the best introduction to Judaism that I have ever encountered, and I have encountered a few. Now, if after listening to this conversation you want to know more, I'll encourage you to check out his program's website. Uh, that's at intro, I-N-T-R-O, dot A-J-U, that's uh, for American Jewish University, which is A-J-U, dot E-D-U for education, intro, dot A-J-U, dot E-D-U, all of which will be down in the show notes for this broadcast. If you read up on this program and you'd like to take a class, there are usually several going at any given time that's here in the L.A. area, as well as at synagogues throughout the country right now. And I'll be teaching it again myself at my synagogue here in Burbank, at Burbank Temple Emmanuel, starting in January or February, and that info will also be up on that website. So check out the website and make your plans accordingly. Today, I want to devote this entire episode to sharing Rabbi Greenwald's wisdom and warmth. So I'm airing our conversation uncut and uninterrupted. And I'll close this episode with advice on how to connect with Rabbi Greenwald and his program. And I won't be answering any questions myself at this time. However, if you have any questions or comments on what we've learned together so far or what you'd like to learn more about, please feel free to email me at rabbi at wisdomcommunitypodcast.com. That's R-A-B-B-I and however you spell the rest of it. And if you'd like to join our community for ongoing learning, I invite you to visit wisdomcommunitypodcast.com and click on the shiny gold button to join our community, receive our emails, uh, along with a brief guide that I'm offering right now, which is a, a guide on three things that you need to live a more meaningful life. Uh, and these are things that I use every single day. But now, without further introduction or interruption, here is my teacher and my friend, Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Greetings, I am here with Rabbi Adam Greenwald, who is the director of the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. How are you, Adam? I am doing great. 
So tell me a little bit about the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. So the Miller program has been in existence since 1986. It is the largest program in North America preparing people for conversion to Judaism. Over the course of our history, we have seen um, somewhere north of 12,000 students come through the program um, and just under 5,000 people who have joined the Jewish people through the course of taking the Miller classes. So I like to tell people that's enough to make simultaneous minion in every non-Orthodox synagogue west of the Mississippi River just with the converts from the Miller program. Um, I've been running the program for the last three years and love working with the students who come through, um, both those who are converting and also um, with the Jews who take the program not as part of a journey to Judaism, but as a part of a journey back to Judaism, a way of reconnecting themselves with everything they might have learned in Hebrew school had they been paying any sort of attention. Fantastic. Now, full disclosure, or rather a partial disclosure, because we don't know each other that well, um, not you and me, Adam, you, me, and you and me, internet. Um, I've substitute taught for that class before, and I have to say, I've, I always tell people I have two favorite moments. One is when a young person who's interested in converting to Judaism has some sort of question that's a little bit off the page, and then somebody else in the class who's, let's say, 70-ish, 80-ish, guides them you know well that's what the textbook says but this was my experience growing up and gives a little bit of color to it it gives a little bit of real life to it mm -hmm. my other favorite moment is when that 70 or 80 year old person says oh my goodness i've been jewish my whole life and i never knew that and that light bulb goes off for them as well yeah i kind of feel about the class that's a little bit like when you have some electric appliance around your house and you've had it for years and then you finally find the instruction manual and you look through and go, oh man, that's what that button does. Right. Right. And like most Jews got their Judaism without the instruction manual and are still totally confused about what that button does. Right. And the Miller program, I hope, is a little piece in making that a little bit easier. Okay. Now let's back up a little bit. Um, we're talking about uh, your customer base or rather maybe who's not your customer base. Who is... Jewish already. Who's already Jewish who doesn't need to take your class? Who's already Jewish who doesn't need to take my class? Right. Well, I happen to think that most Jews would benefit from taking my class. Okay. <laughs> um, I suppose if you have finished a five-year rabbinic program, you don't need it, but I right. met some exceptions to that rule. Okay. Um, Noted. I could, <laughs> I could take it. The No, I, I really think, I think that the class is for... Hebrew school dropouts and rabbinical school wannabes and people who are not Jewish and have always felt Jewish and people who are just a little bit curious. It's really for all of them. Well, let me ask this in a more stickily political way. Who is a Jew? Well, that's a big question. I only ask big questions. Oh, that's the depth of wisdom of Rabbi John Carrier, Internet. Hey. Um, who is a Jew? Uh, the definition by halakha, the definition by Jewish law of a Jew, is somebody who was born to a Jewish mother or somebody who chooses Judaism through the process of conversion. Um, since 1985, the Reform Movement has recognized the child of either a Jewish mother or a Jewish father um, as equally halakhically Jewish, um, but that's not a step that either the conservative movement, which I'm a part of, or Orthodox Judaism has embraced. Okay, so if somebody says, man, I really want to be Jewish, and they walk in, 
and they say, I really want to be Jewish uh, because I heard my mother was Jewish, so now I would like you to convert me. You would say, I'd love to have you in my class. You just don't have to take the final. <laughs> I guess so. Um, there, there's a joke, you know this joke, right, about uh, the man who comes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, would you make me a Kohen, which is a, a descendant of the priestly line. And the rabbi said, I, I, I can't make you a Kohen. And the man says, please, I'll do anything. And the, the rabbi says, I'm really, I'm stuck. I can't make you a Kohen. And the man says, I will donate a new wing to the synagogue. Just make me a Kohen. And the rabbi says, I can't make you a Kohen. And the man says, I'm going to pull out a gun and point it at you, rabbi. You make me a Kohen. So what's the rabbi to do? He says, Baruch you're a Kohen. The man thanks him, holsters his weapon. And as he's walking out, the rabbi says, I just have to know, you know, why do you want to be a Kohen so bad? And the visitor says, well, my father was a Cohen, and his father was a Cohen, and his father was a Cohen. The joke there is that Cohen goes actually down the patrilineal line. Um, you, right, so you he was a, he was a Cohen the whole time. He was a Cohen the whole time. It was it's funnier if you uh, if you tell it in person. I don't know if it translates over the internet. Right. Uh, most things don't, so that's okay. We all still get along. So let's say uh, let's say I'm not halachically Jewish, meaning I'm not you know I wasn't uh, born Jewish or to a Jewish mother. I haven't converted to Judaism yet. Um, how does somebody become Jewish? So if somebody is not Jewish and they want to become Jewish, their first step is to learn about Judaism. Um, and the Miller program is one way in which people learn about Judaism. Um, and across the country, we actually work with many other programs that offer similar sorts of classes and learning opportunities. I think unlike some other religious traditions that allow you to convert with just a declaration of faith, Judaism really operates on an informed consent sort of a model, right? You really need to know what it is you're getting yourself in for um, before you can make an informed decision that this is a people that you want to tie your life and lot with. So the first step for conversion is learning. Um, when somebody has done that learning and they feel like you know what, this actually matches who I am and who I know God to be in my life and what I'm looking for in terms of a tradition and community, uh, then they make a relationship with a sponsoring rabbi. A sponsoring rabbi is like a coach, mm. somebody who you can meet with to talk through matters of belief, matters of practice, um, the challenges that come up with changing religion, with adopting a new religious tradition. Right. And if and, you get hurt, they tell you to take a lap or... Yeah, more or less. Take a salt tablet. Try again next Shabbos. <laughs> um, and when you and your sponsor both decide, you know what, ready to go. And that's sort of like when you were learning to drive and you mm -hmm. had a driving instructor who also had a brake pedal. Okay. Um, right? Both of you have to give the go-ahead. Um, then you schedule an appointment for a conversion. Mm -hmm. And conversion uh, takes place in two parts. The first piece is what's called a Beit Din. A Beit Din is a panel of three rabbis who do essentially an intake interview, um, get to know you, hear about your story, um, determine that you are making an informed sort of decision. Um, and that also gives you an opportunity to affirm your loyalty to the Jewish people in the presence of three scholars, in the presence of three um, rabbinic witnesses. And then the second piece of conversion is immersion in a mikvah. Mikvah is a pool of water. Um, it's the source for baptism. He mm -hmm. was John the Mikvah-er before he was John the Baptist. Get out. Uh, 
and uh, you take an immersion in this body of water and which is either a natural living body of water like a lake or a river or the ocean or a constructed mikvah which uses natural water from a source like rainwater or from a well um, and immersion in that water is the way of sealing one's rebirth as a member of the Jewish people. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, um, let's go back to the Beit Din for a second. Um, popular conception of converting to Judaism is, or if you don't know, if you don't know anything about converting, you know this, and that is that a rabbi is supposed to turn you away three times. Is this true? So it is something that everybody has heard, and it's not exactly true. Um, so there is a source in Jewish tradition that says a convert should be turned away three times, but it's actually a minority opinion. The okay. majority opinions in Jewish um, thought and writing over the last 2,000 years about this have actually expressed the opposite, have said that when somebody comes and wants to be Jewish, if they are prepared to tie their life and lot with that of the Jewish people, um, and they're prepared to take on the responsibilities of being a Jew in the world, then we're to welcome them with open arms. Right. So we don't turn people away. We don't make them prove it. It's not a fraternity that you have to get hazed into. Um, but it is different than a religious model where all you need to do is stand up and raise your hand and say, I want to be a Jew. Right. There is a process of learning and then a ceremonial process of validation right. um, to that because it is seen as a lifelong commitment. And... I certainly wouldn't want to make a lifelong commitment in an afternoon. Right. And it sounds like however you want to characterize it, you can characterize it as a bit of a higher hurdle. And if I'm hearing you and, and some other things that I've read, it's not about keeping people out for the ter in terms of exclusivity necessarily. It's really about raising the bar for assessing sincerity for, and for assessing that spirit of um, informed consent. Right. You got to know what you're getting into. You know, this isn't a decision to take lightly. And uh, I believe it talks about in the Shulchan Aruch, you, you say, OK, here's some learning. But you also have to say to somebody in the Shulchan Aruch, this code of Jewish law uh, says that, you know, you have to tell the person this isn't just roses and cake and gefilte fish. Like, I don't think Ugh. any. Sorry. One of these things does not belong with the other. One of these things um, is not like the other. So it's it's not it's not all a party. Right. Things have happened to people because they were Jewish, and you should know that. In, in case you didn't know about that, you should know about that. Um, and it puts it, not only that, but um, it can put a lot of responsibilities on somebody. You're taking on mitzvot. You're taking on responsibilities for the holiness of the world, right? And not, yeah. not you know, and no small thing, the holiness of yourself. But it's sort of like we were talking about right actually before we started the. The interview mm. um, we were talking back and forth about how people actually don't want a low bar experience they want a high bar experience in almost every aspect of our lives mm. right people don't want to go to the least challenging yoga class in town right right they want to go to the most challenging yoga class I've heard in town. that about other people yeah <laughs> people don't you know dream about being on the lowest performing team where everybody can get on in almost every aspect of our lives we want to be pushed and we take 
greater pride and satisfaction in the things that we have to work hard at. Right. Um, and I can't imagine that religious life is any different, right? It's what you invest in it is what you get back from it. And a very small investment yields very small returns and a deep investment that comes with learning and thinking and growing relationships and participating in the community comes back with really incredible returns. It's a lot of work. Sounds totally worth it. So we talked about the what of conversion. We've talked about the how. Um, let me ask you about the why. Why might somebody want to be Jewish? So the most common reason why somebody comes to me wanting to be Jewish um, is because they fell in love with a Jew. And I've done that. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a good plan, most of the time, most of the time. Um, people come to me because they fell in love with somebody Jewish and there are rabbis who see that as an illegitimate reason to mm. convert. And I couldn't feel more the opposite. right? I think almost all the choices that I've made in my life that have been good choices have been made because somebody I love invites me to do them. Mm. right? That I've had a teacher, a partner, a friend, a parent um, who has encouraged me to think about something I never would have thought about before. Mm -hmm. And that opens my horizons beyond what I could have imagined. So there's nothing illegitimate about because one is in love with a Jew, having that be an entree to falling in love with Judaism. There are, however, lots of people who come to Judaism and they come to it outside of a relationship with somebody who's already Jewish. They come to it because they took a religion class in college. They come to it because they had Jewish friends growing up and they thought the bar mitzvah parties were really cool and seven, you know, eight nights of presents on Hanukkah really beat just one day of presents on right. Christmas. And then you have to tell them, like, you know, you're 26, right? You don't get a bar mitzvah. You, don't get that <laughs> um, you know, it, there are every number of reasons why somebody chooses to find their way into the Jewish people. And I know that I haven't met two people who have exactly the same story. And that is what makes the work that I do so interesting and so exciting. Okay, so you've got you you've got this you've got the all sorts of reasons why somebody would want to be Jewish beforehand, Lahatila, as some of our teachers might say. Um Badiavad, ex post facto. I uh I I went in the bath. Um but there's one more step that we didn't talk about. Should we talk about it? It is the internet. It's not censored. Uh, in becoming Jewish, um, you've got the Beit Din, which is the court, which is the three rabbis. You've got the mikvah, which is the bath. Um, uh -oh. Isn't there another, uh, let's say, gentlemanly responsibility that somebody might have? So your listeners should know that somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of the students who come through this program are women. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there's a reason for that. Um, and one of those reasons is that for gentlemen, there is an additional requirement. Um, the oldest religious institution of Judaism, dating back before any of the other laws or traditions, is the requirement of circumcision. Thankfully, in um, America, most children, Jewish or not, are circumcised, though there are guys who come for conversion um, who come from other countries or came from a family in which they weren't circumcised who do go for that procedure as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty amazing act of devotion uh, to choose to go through. It is... We can say from the outside. Like, that's a pretty... <laughs> what a great act of devotion. Ah, uh, yes, I felt that the whole time. You know, I was actually... I was with somebody 
um, mm-hmm. a guy in his early 20s who was doing it. And I, w- I was present in the operating room with him oh, yeah. about three months ago. And I have to tell you, you know, it might have been the Vicodin that he took, but we had the most amazing conversation in the mm-hmm. midst of it, right? It's a local um, anesthetic procedure. So the urologist was doing his thing on one half of him and I was talking to the other half. Mm-hmm. And we had this incredible conversation about the nature of commitment and the nature of sacrifice and what it meant for him to imprint his Judaism on his body. Mm-hmm. And it Just really... Just be clear, we're talking about his penis, right? That That okay. is what we're talking about. Um, but it, it was actually quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, for men who are already circumcised, um, because Judaism can't leave a good thing alone, mm-hmm. um, there actually is an additional requirement. The requirement is what's called Hatafat Dambrit. Hatafat Dambrit means one drop of blood from the co- for the covenant, mm-hmm. and it's exactly what it sounds like. Because those men were circumcised as a medical procedure rather than as an act of entering into the Jewish covenant, mm-hmm. the way that they join the fraternity of Jewish men um, is by donating one tiny drop of blood from the site where they were circumcised. Um, and that's a procedure that's either done by a, by a moil, mm-hmm. by somebody who is trained as a ritual circumciser, um, or it's something, and this is the more common option, that guys can actually do on themselves. Okay. Um, and it's not really much more of a big deal than the 15 or 20 pricks a day that a diabetic does. So it just doesn't happen to be on your thumb. Okay. Um, sorry, I had to throw that in there. I'll edit that out later. Um, so what's the, just to, uh, for full information like WebMD, what's the recovery time on something like that? On Hatavat Dambrit? No, on the other one. Okay. So for on Hatavat Dambrit, the recovery time is no time at all. Right. Um, the recovery time for an adult circumcision um, is typically one or two days out of work and a couple of weeks until you're back in full performing condition. Okay. So that's a, so that's that's no time at all. That's like a TV show's hiatus, you know, and you binge watch something else. And you're fine. What every guy who's gone through it has told me is that it was not a piece of cake, and it was also not nearly as bad as they expected. Okay, fantastic. Now, once you um, once you become Jewish, then what? Like, what do you get out of it? What does being Jewish add to your life? That's the million-dollar question, right? Um, and it's the big question for people who go through conversion, hmm. right? They are coached and supported and educated and walked up to that moment of mikvah and then i think actually one of the great challenges in the jewish community is that we often leave them dripping there at the mikvah when it's done right we've given them all of the support until this moment and then they get a handshake and go be jewish Uh and as it turns out a three thousand year long community um with roots all over the world is tough to navigate on your own Um, And to find your way into Jewish community takes the partnership of friends and teachers. So for the people who've gone through the process, it's really, really critical that there continues to be some handholding and continues to be some guiding and a recognition that you could become a Jew in an afternoon and to become Jewish might take you 10 years right. to really feel at home in the Jewish community. Yeah, it feels a little bit like moving into a new city where you know no one, right? You've, you, don't, you haven't grown up with any of these people, so you don't have any kind of built-in connection. So it's just really going into a whole new world. 
um, with a new cultural language. And maybe you know one guy, right? You know your rabbi or you know your your brand new spouse and his or her family. Um, but you're really learning a new country. You're learning a new you're learning a new map. Uh, and then and and you may think that everybody in that town is just like your friend, right? Every Jew is just like your rabbi or every Jew is just like your in-laws. Right. And you just really haven't seen the rest of the Jewish world yet. It is, it's, um, you know, not for nothing that Ger is in Hebrew, the term for stranger, but also kind of a legal term for a convert or a sojourner. Right. And rabbis love metaphors. So I love yours. The, uh, the image of being you know, a new citizen in a new country. Um, the metaphor that I use more commonly is the metaphor of marriage, right? That you meet somebody, you fall in love with them, you marry them, you technically join your family with theirs. But you may not actually feel on the day of your wedding that their family is your family, mm-hmm. right? That takes a process of time, whether there's legal paperwork that says we are now all family with one another. Mm-hmm. It may take years or decades or a lifetime to really, truly feel organically apart. Um, and so I think the journey of somebody who becomes Jewish is a journey that begins with a journey of thinking about conversion and commitment mm-hmm. and then continues just like the journey for any Jew over the course of a lifetime of trying to navigate this giant, fascinating, largely dysfunctional family <laughs> that we call the Jewish people. Adam, I love you, but you're not selling it. So what can being Jewish do for you? Oh, I, I didn't realize I was in sales. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you're not, but let's play But let's play along for a second. All right. Uh, what what, what can does be- being Jewish, you, you're, you're done through the program. What does being Jewish add to your life? Like, I'm, I wasn't Jewish yesterday. I'm Jewish today. Do I get superpowers? Um what what am I, what am I now that I wasn't yesterday? I think what you are now that you weren't yesterday is part of this family, mm. right? What you get is you get a family um, that ha- can trace its roots back to Abraham and Sarah thirty five hundred years ago, um, and that includes unbelievable thinkers and people of really really deep soul and cultural traditions um, and food and music and art and land um, and um, a people, a family that's been in the process of discovering who God is and what God can be over the course of these millennia. Um, And I think just like there's no one way to be a family, Um, there's no one way to be a Jew Mm. in this Jewish family. There are going to be people who are going to find the greatest benefit to them is in Jewish religious life, Mm -hmm. in prayer and song and spirituality, and that that's going to feed a part of them in a profound way. There are going to be people for whom their connection is different. Um, I have a younger brother who hasn't been in synagogue on Yom Kippur even, maybe in a decade. Um, But he, four years ago, decided that his place wasn't in Los Angeles. His place was in Israel. Hmm. And he picked up and he went and he lives 
with nine of his best friends in a shared home um, in the north of Israel where he is a teacher for high school seniors um, and kids in between their high school year and senior and freshman year of college who come to explore their Jewish identities. Right? He lives a very different Jewish life than I live, mm-hmm. but he doesn't live one iota less a rich one. Um, I know Jewish artists for whom their place of connection to Judaism is in exploring identity through painting or through music or through dance. Um, I know Jews who explore their identity primarily through politics and a deep sense of commitment to social justice and to kun olam, to healing the world. I don't think, I can't answer your question and like, what do you get? Because I think it is multifaceted and Mm -hmm. it depends on what somebody is looking for. And I go back to what I said earlier, which is that a minimal investment in something yields minimal returns Mm -hmm. and a deep investment in something yields life-changing returns. So whatever kind of a Jew one is to be, um, my investment is in them being passionate in that. Because I think that's what returns back that incredible sense of fulfillment and meaning and community. Well, I think that's a great answer. And I and I also have to apologize. Nailed for it. Putting, first try. Nailed it. You've done this before. Um, I, I apologize for putting you in the sales role. I, I like to question assumptions just because, for me, uh, I feel about Judaism the way Chris Rock feels about crack. Right, you don't need to sell Judaism. Judaism sells <laughs> itself. You should um, all Google that reference so you know really what Rabbi right. John Carrier is talking about. Right. Okay, um, that 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 will just show people that I'm as old as I am, and that's where the wisdom comes from. So, what does we've talked about what what Judaism can add to someone's life when they put into it? What does somebody lose? I wasn't Jewish yesterday. I'm Jewish today. What what have I lost? That's a great question. Well, the first thing I'll say is that in conversion, you don't lose the identity that you were before. Right? It's not a concept that you are supposed to cut ties or be disconnected with the family or the person who you were before that. I cannot conceive of a God who would want in the process of getting closer to him or her or it for that to mean walking away from family and friends who have been loving sources of support up till now. So you don't lose who you were as a person. You don't lose the relationships that you had before. I think one thing that you lose in joining a community is some degree of individual autonomy, Mm. right? Whenever you join something that's bigger than yourself you are choosing to place yourself in a bigger and broader context and that comes with responsibilities um i don't think that there is a way to be a jew that doesn't ask something of you and life is simpler when nothing is asked of you but life is also a lot less meaningful when nothing is asked of you sort of the paradigm of life is simpler as a single person but hopefully Mm. it is more fulfilling as a person who's partnered or life is certainly simpler if you don't choose to have children Mm -hmm. and life is more fulfilling hopefully if you do choose to have children um 
those things that add limits to our autonomy and mm-hmm. add deeper responsibilities to our lives um, also enrich them in turn. Wonderful, wonderful. I was, uh, I often like to talk about this book by philosopher Susan Wolf from Johns Hopkins, who talks about the source of a meaningful life. You know, philosophers mm-hmm. often talk about, you know, what is the meaning of life? And Dr. Wolf says, well, different question. What makes the experience of life meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Meaning somebody would look back on in a life or a particular experience as having been meaningful. And what she comes up with is this joint quality of objective worth and subjective enjoyment. Mm. Meaning, is it something that other people would say is valuable? Often described as something outside or bigger than myself, Mm -hmm. right? Am I doing something objectively valuable? Am I doing something that other people would say is worthwhile? And am I having fun doing it? Mm -hmm. Right? That's that subjective enjoyment piece. And the reason both of those things are important is, let's say you're doing, use the word tikkun olam, or helping repair uh, the brokenness in the world. Let's say you're working at a soup kitchen, um, and you hate it, right? You hate soup, you hate people who eat soup, and you're miserable the entire time that you're doing it. Can you call that experience meaningful afterwards? On the other hand, you know, if you love playing Angry Birds, uh, I don't know what people play instead of Angry Birds now. Um, I mostly use an abacus. Uh, if you love playing some sort of addictive video game and you do it all all the time and you're having fun the entire time, you can't look back on that and say that that was meaningful. And I feel like Judaism offers that intersection beautifully. Oh. There's a lot of fun to be had being a Jew. We've got some really fun holidays. Um, all the comedy that comes with it. You know, you you have some you have a lot of laughs. Uh, you have things that aren't necessarily fun, but are joyous. You know, the the the, old, the phrase "all joy and no fun," um, that are that are wonderful, joyful experiences, and it's connected to doing something that feels like a part of something bigger than the individual. Right, and that's where people really find meaning. I think, and I think meaning has a lot to do with this sort of sense of what does it mean to not just survive but to thrive mm-hmm. in the world like what does it mean to live a life that it's not just getting through the day but really living the heck out of every minute that we have mm-hmm. we're so lonely mm-hmm. right we're so disconnected from one another um so disconnected often from ourselves and so distracted and distractible and I think what Judaism offers is it offers that sense of community and family and context and those moments to stop being actually distracted and to pay attention, to stop doing what, what Abraham Joshua Heschel called embezzling our own lives, hmm. right? Stealing away our own time um, when we have so precious little of it. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it occurs to me that I've been speaking very selfishly uh, on behalf of the potential convert, um, saying, you know, what, is this, what does this do for me? What does it take away from me? Let me flip it and say, yesterday I wasn't Jewish. Today I'm Jewish. What have I added to the Jewish people? So you should know the Jewish community is 
becoming a greater and greater percentage made up of by converts. Mm -hmm. um, in the last major study of American Jewish population, 17% of American Jews are now converts. That means roughly one in five Jews weren't born Jewish. Mm -hmm. That's a remarkably high percentage. Um, oh yeah, I thought it. I thought it was uh, my jaw dropped when I heard it was one in six. So that's yeah. bananas. It is. It is a rapidly growing percentage, and that number is only going to keep climbing. Um, and what that contributes to the Jewish people, in addition to a little bit of much-needed genetic diversity, um, which really does help. Mm. Um, we were marrying our cousins in the shtetls in eastern New York for far too long. Yeah, um, I ask the cheetahs how they feel about that. <laughs> um, is it contributes people who are actually passionate about their Judaism, right? We relate differently to the things that we were born with than the things that we choose. The things that we're born with, it's easy to take for granted. I, as a born Jew, it would be very simple for me for Judaism to just simply be one more fact of myself, like mm -hmm. the fact that I'm a tall guy and I have brown hair or at least had a lot of brown hair and now have a little bit, um, you know, it can be a very easy thing to take for granted. If I go through a process of choosing, then the likelihood that I'm going to make Judaism a passionate part of my life is so much higher because it's a matter of my personal acceptance rather than my passive inclusion. Um, so I think what the convert has to offer the Jewish community is a model of what passionate Jewish living looks like. I think that we have so much, we born Jews, have so much to learn from people who choose Judaism in terms of seeing what it is that we've had all along and we so often take so completely for granted. Let's stop talking about these converted Jews okay. and anybody who's interested in conversion, just for a second. We'll talk, we'll talk about them and to them, God willing, soon. I want to talk about... If Rabbi... any of them are listening, by the way, to this podcast, you can find out more about this by visiting our website at intro, intro.aju.edu, and I'm sure that'll be flashed up on whatever Rabbi Carrier puts up. It um, will be. And we would love to have you. All right. Right. And it's a fantastic class. Uh, I haven't I haven't taken it from the student seat, but I have uh, I have taught it a little bit, and I've met a lot of wonderful graduates uh, and successful converts uh, who have nothing but nice things to say about Rabbi Greenwald and his curriculum. And rumor has it there will be one of our classes happening at your synagogue. That's right. In this spring. You've heard that. Uh, Burbank Temple Emmanuel will be hosting one of these classes starting, I believe, the first Thursday in February. That information will be shared in due course as well. Um, and and I know you're putting this off because of your modesty, but I want to talk to, about Rabbi Adam Greenwald Ooh. for a second. Um, how did you get this job? This sounds like the coolest job in Judaism, by the way. So, you know, I like my job, but I'm mildly curious about how you got yours. I have the best job in rabbinic show business, and I'm not um, ashamed of it at all. I really um, got so incredibly lucky. So I was ordained um, by the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies um, a little over four years ago now, and I spent my first year as a rabbi doing a rabbinic fellowship, sort of a postdoc, mm -hmm. um, at a really amazing congregation in West L.A. called ICAR, 
um, where I had the opportunity to learn under Rabbi Sharon Brous, really one of the great rabbinic voices of our times. Um, and I know a, a friend and mentor to you as well. Mm. Um, but that was a one-year gig. And so I really had no idea what I was doing um, when that job came to an end. And I was fortunate enough that the supervisor of this program, my boss, Rabbi Brad Shavit Artsen, um, also the dean of the Zico School of Rabbinic Studies, gave me a call as I was coming to the end of my tenure at ECAR and said, how would you like to come and work with people who are becoming Jewish? And my first thought was, I'm not interested in that at all. Right? This was not ever a part of the rabbinate that I imagined. I really thought when I was in yeah. rabbinical school that I was going to be working with high school students. Okay. I thought I was going to be working with teenagers. Um, I love teaching high school programs and summer camps and those sorts of things. Um, and Rabbi Erickson said, think about it. And I've sort of made a life plan of doing what he suggests or at least thinking about what he suggests. Right. It's never a bad idea. It's really never a bad idea. Um and the more I thought about it, I thought about what it was that I actually really loved about working with 16-year-olds. And I realized it wasn't the work with 16-year-olds. What I loved about working with that population was that they were at a moment in their life when the learning really mattered, mm -hmm. right? They were at a moment in their life when they were standing at a crossroads moment and they could actually go to the right or left. And the Torah that we were learning together might have an impact hmm. on that choice you know and i think that so often in jewish life what we as rabbis are asked to do is to just reinforce people's already held assumptions mm -hmm. um and to tell them what they already believe right and there can be a value in that right there is a value in coming together as community and being reminded of your own commitments mm -hmm. but i think the high wire rabbiing right the really the really fun stuff is working with folks who don't know 100% where it is that this learning is going to take them, and that right. means that it matters. Right. It could be, you know, it, it, I could be in or out based on the next thing you say. Absolutely. Or based on the quality of the relationship that we're building right now but isn't taken for granted. Absolutely. And the kind of Shabbat that you're going to practice for the rest of your life is going to be dictated by the Shabbat class mm -hmm. that we're doing together. And the way that you see God is going to be shaped by the conversations we have about Jewish theology. And that appealed to the megalomaniacal side of me. That felt right. I was like, going to say, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Unless you are, you know, megalomaniacal. I think you chose that word well. So. Well, but it also, it just makes it so profoundly meaningful mm -hmm. to not be in the position of being an edutainer but to be in the position of really getting to be an educator in the best sense of that, mm -hmm. which is to hold open possibilities for students and then to be able to sit back and watch them seize them. And in my gig today, that's what I get to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it would be more megalomaniacal if I had one plan for what everybody is supposed to do when they come out of this. Right. I don't. And even if I did, I would be bound to fail. Right. You're not you're not putting 5,000 Jews in the world in the image of Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Most certainly not. What I'm hopeful... And you're that... a handsome man, I have to say. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, you you as well. Well, thank you. Um, Hear that, Internet? Um, if, if you heard it on the Internet, it's got to be true. Right. No, I don't think that I'm turning out 
um, students made in my image, what I hope that I'm doing is holding up what Judaism has to offer and holding open the door. And then I get to be super proud of them when they walk through. Outstanding. Now, let me ask you uh, some questions that we learned from our teacher, Dr. Ron Wolfson. What gets you up in the morning? An alarm clock. An alarm clock. But not I, get, I always get that answer. Not very successfully, right. and I hit it multiple times. Gotcha. I have a smartphone that does that. I don't know if you're you're with it, but smartphones do that also. I've heard of such devices. Right. Um, what gets me up in the morning? What gets me up in the morning is that I love what I do, and I'm challenged by what I do. Um, and what I love about the Rabinette, and I, I, I suspect that this is actually quite similar for you as well, is that I don't ever know exactly who's coming through my office in a given day and what challenges I'm going to be faced with, and that makes each day exciting. Mm. That actually leaves me in abject terror, but stipulate it. <laughs> so um, speaking of abject terror, what, what keeps you up at night? Keeps me up at night. Um, I am aware that for every one Jew I help to enter into the Jewish people, there are a hundred who are leaving. Mm. Um, and there's a way in which that can feel like um, like the worst kind of hamster wheel, right? That for all of the work that's done in holding the door open, still there are many, many more Jews who are not finding what's meaningful in this community and in this tradition and choosing to let it go. And as Judaism is the thing that I really love most in the world mm -hmm. um, and the group that I feel my greatest sense of loyalty to, watching people dismiss it as though it were nothing um, hurts. And so I feel called to be doing this work, but I also recognize that there need to be a lot more folks doing it mm -hmm. and that we need to get a lot better at it if we're going to have the kind of vibrant Jewish community um, to pass down to kids and grandkids. Right. Where, 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 why are people leaving and where are they going? I think overwhelmingly people leave Judaism to go to nothingism, to go to American sameness. Hmm. And I think that there is, I get the appeal, right? I get the appeal. I understand that life is simpler with fewer rules and restrictions. Um, I get that while some things about Judaism are joyful, there are many things about Judaism that are challenging and difficult. And I get that in our busy lives, choosing to add more things that are challenging and difficult is not the easiest sell. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're leaving because they look at the Jewish community and they see something that is not speaking to them, but maybe spoke to their parents or grandparents' generation, something that's passed down rather than living in the present. Hmm. Um, and so people walk away. I believe really deeply in Judaism. I think that that's pretty clear. I believe deeply in its power. And I think that if people are shown the meaning and the community that it offers, and people have shown the way that Judaism can continue to reinvent itself in every passing generation um, and not simply be an heirloom 
but to be a living source of joy and meaning. I feel great confidence in Judaism's power to continue to be relevant, but we've got a hell of a lot of work to do um, to show people and convince them. Um, and that keeps me up at night because I, I worry that I am not up to the task and I worry that there are not enough of us who are in the trenches doing it. Well, you've got a lot of good friends, you've got a lot of good partners, and you are, like I said, devilishly handsome. Now, what has been the biggest surprise in your job? Well, to sort of go back to what we were talking about before, but from a slightly different angle, I thought that there would be more people coming to the conversion process out of familial pressure. More people doing this because their future mother-in-law insists. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is in three years of doing this program, seeing 300 students a year, so nearly a thousand over the course of my tenure here, I have seen no more than a handful who I don't think are really sincere. Mm. And I actually attribute that to the upside of the surge in American Jewish intermarriage, right? The downside of intermarriage is that more people are choosing not to be part of the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. The upside of intermarriage is those people who do choose to be part of the Jewish community are actually making now a countercultural choice and a very conscious one. Wow. So what I think it does is it may limit the quantity of people who are coming to us. We may never see the same numbers mm -hmm. of people becoming Jewish that we would have seen 30 or 40 years ago before it was an option for a Jew and a non-Jew to be married. But the quality of the people who come, I think, continues to get more and more refined and more and more strong. Because at this point, if you don't want to be Jewish, you don't become Jewish. And so everybody who comes, comes from a place of wanting. Right. It's a cool club with cool people in it. And I've heard, I uh, was at a presentation by Stephen Cohen, the Jewish demographer. population demographer, expert guy. And he said, what you, he said, what the numbers of intermarriage are telling us is people love marrying Jews. Right? right. For every Jew that's marrying a non-Jew, that's a non-Jew who's marrying a Jewish person uh, voluntarily uh, and happily. Now, two more questions for you. The first is, what is your biggest dream right now? My biggest dream right now. I, such a good question. I envision a Judaism that is deeply committed to not just the language of welcome and inclusion, but a Judaism that actually lives it day to day. A Jewish community that is as diverse ethnically and socioeconomically um, from as many different backgrounds as any city street here in Los Angeles. I envision a Jewish community in which the um, 
in which the entrance to the tent is really truly open. And I think that we are getting there. I think that we are getting there as a community. I think that we are learning the lesson that putting up fences and boundaries and keeping people out is in nobody's interest. Um, and that redemptive possibility exists when we open up our gates and we welcome people in um, wholeheartedly. And I really dream of seeing the fulfillment of that work, um, seeing communities that can hold the widest diversity of Jews and offer, and non-Jews, and people who are fellow travelers, who are committed to being fellow travelers without label, um, and for us to celebrate in that robust, rich diversity, rather than see it as a threat to our continuity. And what do you, last question, what are you going to do tomorrow to make that dream come true? I'm going to keep teaching the students in the Middle Introduction to Judaism program. Um, and I'm going to keep talking about these things, and I'm going to keep um, building and nurturing relationships with incredible and wise colleagues and teachers like you um, who can be partners in that work um, because I think that we need all of the great people that we can get um, invested in that project. Um, and that's what I ask God for is the strength to keep, um, to keep in the trenches and to continue to be blessed with incredible, however, incredible colleagues of people who are doing the same. Amen. See, you're a great rabbi because if somebody asked me that question, what's my biggest dream? I would have said um, Tesla and, uh, and, and I would have said um, red, drawing pictures of a Tesla on my whiteboard to put that intention into the universe. So that's a fantastic answer. I will tell you that answer. I am on an Elul diet for this month of preparation before okay. and so my great dreams may also involve chocolate cake um but it okay. didn't seem in the theme of the podcast that we're doing together okay got you there uh rabbi adam greenwald this has been a very great pleasure thank you so much for spending this time with me uh if you ever have the opportunity to learn with Rabbi Adam Greenwald, I highly recommend it. In fact, I will manifest that into the universe by putting a link to his program in the notes for this podcast Thank so you, you can learn much, more sir. with him. And I'd love to continue learning with you as well. Be well, everybody. And that's a wrap. Seeker, that was my conversation with Rabbi Adam Greenwald, and I hope you enjoyed listening to him as much as I did. And it reminds me of my deep gratitude for living in a place with such great scholars and such wise teachers, a true community of wisdom here in the Los Angeles area and in Burbank. As long as I live here, and I hope that's a long time, I look forward to continuing learning with Rabbi Greenwald. And you can too by visiting his website at intro.aju.edu. That's linked in the show notes for the podcast. And I also look forward to continuing our learning together, Seeker. I invite your questions or your comments about anything you've heard here today and any questions you send to this address, that is rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, at wisdomcommunitypodcast.com. Those questions or comments will come directly to my inbox. Until we meet again on our path toward wisdom and community, be well, seeker. Seeker, thank you for joining me today for this Wisdom Community Podcast. I invite you to join our community by visiting 
wisdomcommunitypodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list to receive updates on future programs and opportunities to seek wisdom and seek community together. If you have a particular question for me, please feel free to email me at the following address, rabbi at wisdomcommunitypodcast.com. Until we speak again, I bless you with strength on your journey in seeking wisdom and seeking community. Be well.